Hey listeners, long time no see, it's Sam. Um, obviously we've taken a long hiatus from the conversations. Uh, Max left the country and I'm getting ready to leave the country, so it's fair to say we won't be uploading as often as we used to, but we did have this episode waiting in the wings. Um, we take on Iranian director Abbas Kiristami's close-up. Now, at the time we recorded this episode, which it's been a while now, um, Kiristami uh, was still alive and working, but he's recently passed away, so we thought this would be as good a time as any to uh, upload this episode and uh, sort of do it in his memory. So, I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to The Conversations. I'm Max. And I'm Sam. And tonight we are discussing Abbas Kiarostami's 1990 film, Close Up. Now I had a premonition before we started this that this could be one of our shorter episodes. Okay. I mean, it's one of the shortest films we've watched. It's mm -hmm. very concise. And then looking at the length of our notes, or lack thereof, uh -huh. I don't know. I mean, was this a fairly straightforward film, do you think? I think it seems pretty straightforward but there's more to unpack okay so starting with the basics in one way this film is a court drama mm-hmm and there's a lot of that yeah um, we're following kind of the strange case of this family that's accusing this man of fraud mm -hmm. and we come to find out it's because the man was impersonating a famous director a very strange case of fraud yeah this takes place in Tehran capital of Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, the film was made in... 1990. 1990. So, post-revolution, obviously. Right, right. But Yeah, what did you think about this setting? For me, as a Westerner, it's like a very, very fascinating window mm -hmm. into another world and kind of, I don't know, just the little details are nice, getting to see, like, their apartment and the food that they serve uh -huh. once in a while and... Just kind of the lifestyle, riding the bus, and the, a lot of dirt roads. Right. It's interesting. But I feel like in spite of all of that, this story could have taken place anywhere. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it doesn't seem that specifically tied to the location. Right. Apart from the kind of surface details, I yeah. guess. And what did, you, what did you think of the movie? Did you like it? I did, and I like it for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. I mean, it really did feel like a window into Iranian culture. I mean, it is so politicized here, mm -hmm. and we so rarely get a look at what's actually going on on the other side. I mean, this felt like, yeah, kind of a rare treat, getting to see some just ordinary trappings of Iranian life. Right. Yeah, and I thought the story was engaging, too. I wanted to see what happened to this guy and wanted to understand why he was doing what he was doing. Not a lot of big shocks or uh, turns of fortune or anything in this movie, though. It's all pretty, I don't know, it's pretty low-key. I think it's interesting that you said you wanted to see more about why he was doing what he's doing. Yeah. Because it seems so kind of um, like that's the movie. You know, <laughs> we we don't really know why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, yeah. So Kiarostami just kind of gives uh he's like just taking the pictures you know showing us the pictures and it's like well what do you think of this i thought it was interesting too how kiarostami inserted himself into the film very and shot it documentary style that's one of the biggest things i wanted to talk about with this movie is this kind of idea of artifice mm -hmm. 
and the metafiction. He does this too in his uh, narrative films, but the close-up even you can't really call a documentary is the weird thing. So much of it seems like a documentary, but it's like because of his direct involvement with what's going on and the kind of absurd uh, serendipity of certain things, it's hard to say what's really true and what's not. And he's, I think in large part, it's a statement about manipulating truth to weave your own story. And he wanted to make us aware of that by directly inserting himself into that narrative. Okay. And it starts from the very beginning we see, you know, the newspaper being printed. It's literally the, the story being fabricated oh. based on these true events. And then there's, um, as a kind of example of this, in the courtroom, one of the sons of the family that's accusing this guy of fraud uh, says, I'm sorry, no, okay, so not in the courtroom, but in a scene where they are in their home, um, Kiarostami's interviewing the family, mm -hmm. and one of the sons says, I studied mechanical engineering, my brother studied mechanical engineering, but we can't get jobs in the field. This guy was able to take advantage of us by making me think I could maybe get uh, into working in art by posing as this film director. And I would have preferred that, to working in art, to what my brother does, which is selling bread. Yeah. Which makes it sound like he's on the street with a cart as a vendor, like, get your bread here, <laughs> right. bread. But um, then what does the mother say? But then the mother says, oh, well, the, you know, that's not totally true. Like, he runs a bakery. Yeah. Which is completely different yeah. than selling it in a little streetcar. And that, to me, is kind of the perfect example of what this film is and the way that people can manipulate things in the very subtle ways to completely alter a story. Yeah. So even the, even the characters who are accusing this guy of lying are guilty of doing it themselves. And then Kiarostami takes that to the next level when he shows us these dramatic reenactments starring the same people that were involved in the real thing. Right. It's so bizarre. Well, are we supposed to take it that way? That's how I took it. How did you take it? I don't know. I just watched those scenes like I was watching a regular film. Right. And then you had this weird sort of shift in like the courtroom scenes where it was like you were watching a documentary. Mm-hmm. And he manipulates us there, too, to kind of be more primed to think the courtroom is more real by kind of shooting it uh, on lower-grade film stock. That's right. He used a completely different... Which is weird that we think, oh, lower-grade, like, lower-quality image, more real. Yeah, or, like, second-hand testimony more real than uh -huh. seeing with our own eyes what's the action happening. Right, but in a way, too, so this is kind of making any movie, right? Yeah. Especially, you know, Hollywood based on the true events right. kind of thing. And this has me thinking, too, about in the last episode when we talked about adaptation, adapting things from page to screen. Mm -hmm. It's not all that different real-life events to yeah. film. Do we, I mean, is there any basis for this, do you know, in real life? Oh, the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, I, as far as I know, it was a real thing, yes. Really? Yeah. So now your mind was just like completely flipped twice, right? In in a minute. Well, yeah, I figured this was just all fiction. But are you saying that those courtroom scenes are real? <laughs> My understanding is that the courtroom scenes are real. Oh, so he was having these people do reenactment. Yeah. Okay. 
But that is bizarre. It's bizarre that we even that you question everything. You know, it's everything we're shown is so <laughs> yeah. kind of ambiguous. As well, is this real? Well, now that yeah, now the questions that I would have is like, how did he get these people to agree to do this? I mean, presumably they're all non-actors, and, and the kind of tension of being in the room together with this guy who did really, you know, take advantage of them. Yeah. Yeah. So Mahmoudov is presumably a real director. Yeah. The director yeah. that the guy was supposed Shows to be impersonating. Yep. Yeah. So So I think the biggest takeaway is, well, it's all film. <laughs> what what yeah, is that's real? One, that's one takeaway. Yeah. I wonder if the the last scene though where they go back to the house, fake Mahmoudov and real Mahmoudov mm-hmm. with the flowers. Right. If that was them sort of re ingratiating themselves with the family and if that kind of started the whole ball rolling for this project. Very possible. It's such a beautiful scene. Too. Yeah. Um, amazing that we don't have any music until that very end. Yep. And one thing about that scene that also drives home this idea of how can we ever say it's real? Because it's like even if that whole scene is completely authentic, really did put a microphone on him and we are seeing them united for the first time and going to see the family, there's this still this thing with the microphone cutting out the yeah. sound, which I definitely don't buy. <laughs> that is 100% contrived. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but I, I think it's kind of beautifully contrived in the sense that he sets it up as real and then such a like act of God, perfect <laughs> cutting out of the sound, prevents us from getting closer to the truth by hearing what words yeah. they might exchange or whatever. And it also reminds me of something that Godard liked to do a lot, which is to mess with soundtracks by kind of just this very abrasive start-stop huh. with music. And I did notice a couple of weird jump cuts in this, too, now that you mentioned Godard. Mm-hmm. But so what is it really? It's like a, a director exerting his control just, just to show us that he's in charge of everything we see. It's going through the filter of him. I don't know. What's I, it about? On that point, my gut says no, because I feel like the director was kind of invisible mm-hmm. through this whole thing, in spite of the fact Despite that we see him in that one in, scene. Yeah. But I feel like he's sort of... St- Days out of it and lets the events sort of unfold naturally as far as the actors are concerned. Or does he trick us into thinking, <laughs> into thinking that he's not as involved as he is? Well, so one thing I read said, you know, the courtroom scenes are real, sure, but just by being there with cameras, interfering with the process by like mm-hmm. asking questions, it's kind of already altering those events. So he was actually directing within the courtroom, right. in a sense. Which, that's crazy, to think that he actually affected, like, a legal proceeding by making this movie. Mm-hmm. But Which might hint at the possibilities of art affecting politics yeah. or political atmospheres. That's a little more of a stretch, I guess. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting, though, that the judge was one of the more, like, overtly religious-looking figures. I mean, mm-hmm. he wears the turban and he has the long beard i mean he looks like one of the uh like the mullahs that run the country more so than anyone else in the film that could reinforce what you were just talking about as far as art influencing politics i'm thinking now to when we first saw that judge too uh before the case and kiosami's asking him from behind the camera and for permission to film this he's just like why would you want to film this (laughs) there's nothing interesting about it (laughs) 
But what his rationale is because it has to do with film. Mm-hmm. Well, my entire conception of this movie has changed. <laughs> well, cool. Knowing the parts of it that were real. I see you were looking too close up. I guess so. Or up close, I guess. Did you notice when the uh, term close-up actually came up in the film? I remember reading it and going, oh, the name of the movie. Yeah, but it's when they're in court and they're telling fake Makhmabov how they're going to be filming and that they're going to show him in close-up and does he know what that means? And uh, he says no. Yeah. And I thought that's really interesting that the guy impersonating a director <laughs> doesn't even know what close-up is. Mm-hmm. And then that, then afterwards he's kind of later like, yeah, I think I would be better as an actor than a director. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> Very clearly, yeah. He's a skilled actor. And so a little bit about the political atmosphere we did you so you said like you could see this happening anywhere mm-hmm. but i was just thinking something we forgot about is kind of the conditions that drove fake makmaba to impersonate this director so like he's in a not good place socioeconomically uh living with his mom he's been divorced his mom has to take care of one of his kids struggling to make much money low-class yeah. worker for whatever reason, this film, uh, The Cyclist by Makhmalbaf, has really hit home for him. And he talks again and again about how it uh, portrays the struggle of the working class. Mm-hmm. And that's his explanation. But, I mean, do we really do we really think that's the whole story? Well, what do you th- <laughs> tell me what you're thinking. Well, because I hadn't remembered it until you brought it up. And you've seen this film more than once, and I feel like it probably bears repeat viewings. I don't know. I feel like they didn't really dwell on that point. Well, uh, but I think there's something to be said for not dwelling on a point that you want to make, too. Okay. Because it's, again, kind of just showing us the photographs and saying, interpret these how you will. But the, the idea, I think just the fact of inclusion of an element makes it worth looking at. Okay. And that's something I had to learn the hard way about movies and reading movies because there's so many things that I would use to, like see a scene and go, oh, what the hell? Like, why is that in this movie? Yeah. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's very clearly like chosen, selected, and kept in because it has to do with that little thing under the surface. Yeah. There's a reason for everything. Mm. Well, if the director's good, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because those do exist. (laughs) What is that scene for? (laughs) Like the hospital scenes in Benjamin Button. Like the hospital scenes scenes in Benjamin Button. Oh, man. We haven't broken our streak every episode. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're keeping tabs on that one. We can always tie it back somehow. Or you can always casually bring it up somehow. (laughs) It hasn't just been me. You know that. Yeah. So what about um, the can in the beginning that kind of rolls down the hill? Yeah, I wrote down that um, that very thing. Too. It stays with you. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what to think about lingers it. Lingers on it so long. I wonder if that's maybe establishing realism, sort of paying attention to the details. I don't know. That's a tough one. Okay, so again, to what degree we can trust what's uh, said about this film or whatever, yeah. I'm not sure. But Kiarostami said that they just happened to find that can on that pile of leaves or trash or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The guy kind of kicked it, and then they were filming it. He's just like, oh, get that, get that. 
And then, you know, just kept rolling. It's an interesting sort of unplanned thing. Yeah. But then clearly becomes a planned thing when in the later shot the guy's running down the hill and like and then kicks it. Yeah. So is that him instructing us as an audience to pay attention to these sort of spontaneous, you know, on the surface mundane things, but maybe there's a greater meaning behind them? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's just um, commentary on real uncontrollable things entering a controlled environment. Okay. You just got to look at it in close up to find out. <laughs> so I have two uh, really good quotes I thought that fake Makhmobov said. Okay. I wish he'd use his real name. I think it was Sabzian. Good memory. It was okay. Sabzian. <laughs> um, he said, oh, and on that note of the why he impersonated a director and having to do with his working class status, he said at one point a director can't be poor. Oh. So that's interesting. And, and untrue. Yeah. But... <laughs> well, is it? I don't know. Can a director be poor? Uh, unsuccessful ones can. Well, <laughs> I think it's implied a successful director. <laughs> or So a director that you've heard of. Right. Otherwise, they're not a director, right? I don't know what qualifies, you know, having made it in an art field. Yeah. It's difficult. M. Night Shyamalan may be broke now. See, that's the thing. He uh, <laughs> He's not. So he just had this new movie come out. Right. The Visit. And it's doing well. Okay. I tried to go see it on opening weekend, and it was sold out. Hmm. I had to go to a later showing, and I got, like, the last two tickets. Yeah. And that's a such a close-up uh, look at how <laughs> insanely well it's doing. It doesn't matter. Shyamalan, because we've heard of him, and we're speaking his name, I think already counts as a director. Yeah. You know? Michael Bay is a director. <laughs> Whether we like that or not is another story. Yeah. But neither of them are poor. What about a director who specifically makes like art house films that are, you know, never make it to wide release and mm -hmm. never gross a ton of money? Maybe they lose money and they're relying on a studio sort of releasing uh, these films for their artistic merit, not because they're going to make money. I wouldn't expect any of those directors to be extremely wealthy. Well, but there's a big difference, too, between extremely wealthy and poor, right? Yeah. <laughs> then, so, the other thing is, if you don't have, like, a kind of studio backing or something, maybe you have, like, an independent producer mm -hmm. or a wealthy friend, I don't know. And I think in those cases, even if the film doesn't get huge release or is not become super well-known, I think there's something to be said for the fact that a director is sort of handling someone else's money in an indirect way and that to be at that point i have a tough time seeing someone who's actually poor in that scenario yeah quentin tarantino was poor before reservoir dogs and maybe while he was making it but not afterwards but, but was he even necessarily poor i mean there's you know there's a gradient there it's obviously yeah. not black white like you're poor now because you <laughs> One cent over the line. <laughs> so directors aren't poor. A director can't be poor. Can't be. Yeah. Uh, the other quote that I wrote down that he said was, when spite comes along, art dons a veil. What do you think about Interesting. that? Yeah. Well, it depends on what he means by spite. And art. And veil. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get the art dons a veil part. So, I mean, I don't know if he's talking about political censorship or... 
criticism in general mm-hmm. or maybe both yeah which i i'm kind of looking at this from the context of being in iran now mm-hmm. but political censorship and yeah i think about like so shostakovich was this russian composer who was denounced by Stalin after one of his pieces premiered, and he was like in danger of being sent off to the gulags. So his next piece had to be a real jaunty, socialistic, like in line with what the party wanted. And mm-hmm. so he composed this symphony that was that, but like encoded in it, if you listen carefully enough, if you listen close up, mm-hmm. it's actually got a very dark um, undercurrent. Yeah, Art Don's Avail. There you go. Spite from the party. Yeah. yeah. And so now, uh, Kiarostami in real life, not in this movie, which is not real life, <laughs> but it is. it? <laughs> yeah. Um, doesn't uh, make movies in Iran anymore. He's moved out of there, and his last two films were shot in, like, uh, like Someone in Love was shot in Japan, and Certified Copy in Italy, I think. Hmm. Yeah, but Certified Copy is also very much kind of obsessed with these similar ideas of artifice and reproduction of an art piece or a reality into a piece of art. Yeah. How recent is that? 2006 or something. Okay. Pretty recent. So he's still living. Yeah. And his, so his last one, I think, was Like Someone in Love, which was 2012, mm. maybe. And one thing I like about these courtroom scenes is that they, they kind of... And this sort of prying at him to get an answer of why did you do this? Because, you know, we kind of know from the beginning we're not really going to get a clear-cut answer because it seems like that's something Sabzian himself can't even really comprehend on a conscious level, maybe, fully. Uh, It reminds me of the book The Stranger. Have you read that? Camus? Yeah. I have not read it. Ah, shit. (laughs) Well, in that... You hadn't heard the Shostakovich. There we go. (laughs) Just go with it. <laughs> so in The Stranger, um, this guy commits murder on a beach. There's like this small confrontation between him and some Algerians. I think he's with a friend. And he ends up shooting a guy. Uh, and then after the guy is died from this one gunshot, he shoots him again several times. And so then uh, when he's in court, they're like, why did you keep shooting him after the first time? Maybe if you had just shot him that once and he died and it was like kind of self-defense, there was a brawl, you would be getting a much lighter sentence. But you shot him like, and they have this specific number or something like five more times after he was already dead. Why did you do that? And he's just kind of like, I don't know. just (laughs) seemed like the right thing to do at the time, kind of. He's just sort of this... um, stoic guy he's the stranger yeah just had me thinking of that because of the way they just keep prying at sabzion and he doesn't know really yeah and we kind of watch him i feel like you can see it in his eyes maybe this is me projecting myself into it but it feels like you can see in his eyes him kind of constructing the performance for each answer Mm. as he's listening to the questions yeah like he's listening so intently say okay so and he's kind of like a director in just building this little story. And one of the sons even says that in court. They say he's performing now. Yeah, yeah. Truly bizarre. I just need to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we said a director can't be poor, and then we're trying to qualify what really counts as a director. Is it a famous director? And what counts as poor? Yeah. And that has me thinking about what counts as a movie. 
Because, like, I feel like for this guy, Sabzion, in his mind's eye, that performance constructed for each answer is a movie in and of itself. Or maybe his whole experience, completely divorced from this quasi-documentary close-up, is a movie for him, this period of his life Mm -hmm. of, like, a month or so. Does a movie have to be on a screen for someone else to see it to count as a movie? Right. I would say yes. Yeah. But Sabzion would say no. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe so. It ended up on screen. But I'm thinking about our mind's eye in general. Yeah. Because it's weird that we all can visualize things that no one else can mm-hmm. see. And it's it's kind of like, what if you watched a movie by yourself and then no one else had seen it? Other than the people who made it, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay, or how about this one? What if you shoot a film by yourself? You don't use actors or a crew or anything. You shoot a short film. Okay. And then um, you watch it, and you don't show anyone. Is that a movie? Sure. Okay, <laughs> so not? what's the difference between that and the movie in your mind's eye? Because the movie in your mind's eye isn't recorded. But is it not just recorded in a non-digital way? But the possibility of showing it to someone else doesn't even exist. There it is. I think it has to exist outside your mind. Otherwise, we're just not using the term correctly. Right. Then the problem becomes in our perception, too, right? Because when we watch a movie, it's still... We are watching it in our mind, in a way. Oh, yeah. No, we each filter it completely differently, but there does still exist this objective thing outside both of our minds that we're being shown... And no matter how we interpret it differently, it still exists as its own thing. Mm, Just like the real events of this case. Yeah. Something else I thought was interesting about uh, Sabzian in his role as the fake Makhmalbaf was that the movie title he told the family that he was preparing for for his next movie was The House of the Spider. (laughs) What do you think about that? Interesting. Maybe he's the spider. You think he's the spider? <laughs> or is someone in that family the spider? Who who in the family would it be? I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking the patriarch just because. Yeah. He seemed like a nice enough guy, though. He did. <laughs> such a such a good name. Yeah. Now, it seems more like kind of Sabzian, like, spinning his web. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Web of lies. There we go. And I liked in the subtitles where we had... Uh, that the guy who wrote the newspaper article had said something about bogus, and that in our subtitles it said bogus. Yeah. I would <laughs> wish I could know what that original word was in Persian, I guess. Yeah. So I don't know. I, do you have... Um, maybe I'm just pushing here or, like, reaching, but uh, whatever. Do you have any kind of just general thoughts more on the idea of artifice in movies um, or in storytelling what it means to embellish things. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Well, yeah, I think that's kind of what the whole art form is. I mean, it's all artifice. I mean, most of it's fiction. If it's documentary, even that is edited in such a way that certain things are emphasized. I mean, it's never... Like free of manipulation. Right. It's yeah. never just a straight-up recording of real life. Mm-hmm. Because even just the selection of what you record, even if there was no kind of commentary yeah. on it. And that's a rare film that's just a selection of recorded moments without added music mm-hmm. or commentary or any of the other sort of more subtle things that sort of guide how we view and understand the film. So, yeah. 
I think it's all artifice. And so do you think that just by putting himself in the movie, Kiarostami is drawing attention to that, or it's like it doesn't really... Like it's not your first instinct to pay more attention to that element just because he puts himself in there? I personally didn't react to it by thinking about artifice and film. I mean, I remember as we were watching it, the first thing I did was turn to you and say, so wait, is this a real documentary? Because <laughs> I didn't know if it was or if it was more of a spinal tap kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like spinal tap. <laughs> it's like Iranian spinal tap. There you go. Yeah. That'll, that'll sell this movie. That'll get us <laughs> some listeners. No, it's just, it's always an interesting thing to me because I know so many people get caught up in the moment of a dramatic narrative i think it can be dangerous really yeah i th- i mean i don't think it could be dangerous for you <laughs> i'm not worried about you watching dramatic okay. narrative films but i mean sometimes i kind of just see people's or hear people talk about film and like oh yeah i hate that movie because x event i can't believe they killed a dog i can't believe so-and-so could betray so-and-so yeah. And it's affecting them on an emotional level. Right, like it really happened. Yeah, it's like creating a real stress from fake events. <laughs> I guess we kind of do that in real life, too. It's yeah. like things that don't matter. Oh, stuff on the news. Yeah. Sure. I don't know, that gets back to our old saw, the sort of movies is escapism argument. Mm-hmm. Like getting lost in the story versus keeping in mind that it's just a movie. Right, so, well, that's interesting to me, too, that you took the stance of, yeah, it's all artifice, because, yeah, of course you're right, but <laughs> you were also, you know, fighting for the merits of kind of getting lost in the story. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about that. I'm interested in that. Just because I acknowledge that it's all artifice when we're having, like, a philosophical conversation about it doesn't mean that in the moment I'm constantly thinking about it that way. I still find it really easy to get lost in movies and stop worrying about the camera angles and stop worrying about what the director was thinking when he did this and just like pay attention to what the characters are doing and how the story is unfolding. And I still really, really enjoy that. So it's going to take a lot to get me to give that up. Well, I, mean, I probably won't. I'm not trying <laughs> to either. It's fun. I and then after the thing's over, as I'm processing it, then maybe I'll start to acknowledge that stuff. Like, yeah, that was just a movie, and they made these certain decisions, especially if something happens that I don't like. Mm. You know, the character I love dies. <laughs> then you'd be more inclined to pick up that lens again. I guess so, okay. yeah. I think, I, I mean, for me, it's pretty similar. It's like if something you don't like happens, <laughs> it's a lot easier to, okay, let's look at this critically right but there's some movies that you go into knowing that something you're not gonna like is gonna happen i think of like schindler's list as an example Mm -hmm. which i can't bring myself to watch for that very reason really yeah well and that it's directed by steven spielberg (laughs) whoa (laughs) is that an episode we're gonna have to do uh no that's not (laughs) it's not worth it so you're you're a spielberg hater hate is a strong (laughs) word if we were to do an episode about it, it'd probably be like, what happened to Steven Spielberg? Ouch. So where do you, I mean, uh, AI? Like, where does it get bad for you? <laughs> I, I guess it's just kind of, it. so things like E.T. and Jaws, mm-hmm. um, I think are good, but they, they feel kind of, 
pandering. It's like watching them as a kid was nice, and then watching them a little older was like, well... Probably E.T. more so than Jaws. Well, I don't know. I feel like in a weird way, they're both kind of going after the same sort of thing of like, let's take you to an emotional climax. And I feel like that's... Cheap thrills. Yeah, it's kind of what how it comes across for me in most of his films is seeking those cheap thrills. I think, I think Schindler's List is a great film, though. Do you not... I haven't seen it, like I said. You haven't seen it? No. I what? Sa- that's what I said. It's keeping me from seeing it. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I well, mean, well... And I mean, we could get into this whole artifice component, too, because there is a there is a segment of Schindler's List that's taken from real life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give any spoilers here, but that's a major factor in the film. Okay. A, a lot of it's based, based on true events, but then you get actually sequences of film that are documentary footage, so... Which has me thinking of Waltz with Bashir. Have you seen that? I haven't. Because that's all a cartoon uh, based on real life, and then ending shots are real life. Very impactful. Well, but I mean, you summed it up yourself, as Kubrick summed it up, I think, right? The the Holocaust isn't about... Oh, so the Schindler's List is about success, and the Holocaust was about failure. Right. Which... Okay, I'm which gonna... also has me like is keeping me from seeing it. Well, no, I'm going to defend that because there's a lot of there's a lot of horror in Schindler's List. He doesn't shy away from that. Okay. Ultimately, the story is about one of hope and about someone who actually did something good during the Holocaust, as mm-hmm. rare as that may have been. And I think those are the stories that are maybe worth focusing on. Most because they say something better about us as humans. I mean, what what would be the point of making a film whose ultimate lesson is failure? <laughs> who who would want to watch that, and what would they get out of it after having watched it? Bleak. It is bleak, and I don't know if I, I don't even know if there's enough basis in reality to justify making it. Because I think stories like Schindler's List disprove that as a thesis, like saying, oh, this is how life is. I feel like we could have a more educated discussion about if this if you had seen yeah, the movie, which I do own. <laughs> Maybe. I, but even a kind of another reason I'm just like hesitant to even approach it is just the idea of a movie about the Holocaust or involving the Holocaust. Yeah. It seems perverted. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, there was, um, so Godard said that film as a medium failed us uh, when it wasn't there to capture the Holocaust yeah. and to get concrete imagery of what happened. And he's like, the only film came close or did what it should have in that respect was uh, it's like a half-hour film by another French New Wave guy, Alan Rena. Highly recommended. Okay. But... You know, even that has, you know, narration and there's some music, but it's mostly just images of dead bodies. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can never capture the Holocaust on film. And there would be no way to do it. Right. Um, So, again, in defense of Schindler's List, it's not trying to capture the Holocaust on film. It's telling one specific story. It's one thing that happened in the midst of all this that is instructive, I think. Maybe it changed my mind on Spielberg. Who knows? (laughs) Not that general consensus matters, not that the majority is always right, but 
pretty critically renowned film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't run across any critics that didn't like it for like the reasons you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That they thought it like it's perverse to make a film about the Holocaust. I mean, I know it was uh, really well received in Europe too. Yeah. Actually, okay. maybe someone like Haneke would say that. It, but... Yeah, I think that's where I'm. It's <laughs> probably where I picked that up. What can I say? I respect the guy. And speaking of which, I can't believe we didn't. <laughs> wow, this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't said that. Uh, Haneke is a big-time admirer of Kiarostami. Oh, okay. I could see that. Yeah, and kind of this, like, no music, no bullshit, yeah. like, show the stuff and see what happens Yeah, kind of approach. This has been The Conversations. Join, Join us, us next week. week. <laughs> Join us next week. For a good movie.